If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted, so do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Eugene Boring, in his commentary on this Gospel of Matthew, says that Almost immediately after Jesus has called his disciples, Matthew then begins this new section of his gospel, which Dr. Boring, uh, Boring calls the cost of discipleship. Having been called to be disciples, and that word means learners, to learn the ways of our Christ, to learn the ways of the kingdom of God, next, what kind of changes will that require in them? When I saw that title, I was reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic work, The Cost of Discipleship. The young German theologian imprisoned by the Nazis at Flussen just weeks before the liberation forces arrived was taken out early one morning and hanged. His book was circulated around the Christian world, The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he makes this statement. The grace of God is free. God's unmerited love, God's undeserved favor, a gift to anyone who will receive it. But if we want the grace of God to deal with our sins and not with the sinner, we cheapen God's gift. What he means, of course, is we want to be forgiven, but we don't want to change. We want to keep on doing what we've always done the way we've always done it. The Wesleys said, when we come to those marvelous moments, they called justifying moments, when the grace of God speaks to your deepest heart and says, I have forgiven you, nothing stands between you and me, in that same moment, the Holy Spirit of God begins to sanctify us. Sanctify comes from the Latin sanctus, which means holy or the set apart. We become not like all the rest of them, we become like him, our Lord and Savior. A little bit more, a little bit more like him. Or the Jews have the marvelous word for repentance, which means not just being sorry, but being willing to be turned and sent in a different direction. So this passage is about the cost of discipleship. Let's take a look. First of all, Jesus said, These folks have called me Beelzebul. If they call me Beelzebul, guess how much worse names they're going to call you? Now, Beelzebul is a word that gradually morphed over several centuries. It was originally B-A-A-L, Baal. You were probably taught as a child to call that Baal. It really has two, two syllables, Baalzebul. When the 
Israelites crossed the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua. They were confronted by the Canaanites, who were heathen and pagan, who worshipped the old fertility gods and goddesses, chief among them Baal. Baal Zebul was considered the prince of princes, or the god of gods, or the lord of lords, as we say of our god. So as the Israelites got to know them better and to learn their gods and goddesses, they discovered these were heathen, these were pagan, and so they gradually changed the word a little bit to Beelzebul, which was more of the lord of the dung heap, if you would. William Golding knew that meaning, and that's why he called his novel The Lord of the Flies, about a group of choir boys who hunted each other with pointed sticks, who cut the head off of a wild hog they caught, who stuck that head up on a pointed stick, and as it baked in the sun, flies hovered round it, the Lord of the Flies. It really has to do more with the dung heap. So Eugene Peterson translated it this way, if they've called me your master dung face, guess what they're going to call you? Dr. F.W. Bear says, name-calling is the least form of persecution, but it hurts nonetheless. A couple of weeks ago, I got a call late one afternoon here at the church. The receptionist said, there's a man named Bob who wants to talk to you. She gave me the last name. And, gee, my mind started running back. I have a first cousin by that name. I haven't seen him in almost nine years. I haven't heard from him in almost nine years. He was at my father's funeral. Last time I saw or heard from him, and he had suddenly decided to call me one late Thursday afternoon in June to tell me how proud of me he was that I was named a distinguished alumnus of our high school last September. But as he talked on, he wanted to tell me why he didn't drive 100 miles to be with me that night. And he said, I have some bad memories about Carthage High School. I said, what kind of memories, Bob? And then he spelled out some things similar to my experiences. We went to a consolidated school district. The whole county had been consolidated into one big school. It made a far better school. Uh, the natural gas tax dollars made it a wealthy school there in East Texas. Our teachers were paid well. Our band always had the latest of instruments and uniform. Football players had the best. Our laboratories were some of the best high school labs in that part of the country. The teachers were wonderful. The students were sort of rotten because the town kids somehow had sort of built a wall around themselves against us who lived outside town who rode the school buses in every day. And this is the story Bob told me. He said he was in the third grade. Walked in the first day into third grade, and his teacher wrote her name up on the board. I'm Ms. Baker. I'll get to know all of your names right away, and I want all of you to get to know each other. But for right now, let's just begin with this understanding. We're all neighbors. I want you to turn to the person on your right, tell them your name, and say, I'm your neighbor. And then we'll turn the other direction. You tell everybody, I'm your neighbor. Tell them your name. He said he spoke to one little child, and they were fairly nice. They lived out in the country as well. He turned to the other, whose daddy owned a cleaner's store. Probably didn't make any more money than Bob's dad did, but who said to him, I'm not your neighbor. I'm not going to be the neighbor of a pig farmer. Bob's 57. This was said to him when he was eight, and he's never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. 
words hurt. They do hurt, whether they come from a child or from an adult. They hurt. And Jesus understood that. Number two, he said, after don't, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those name callers. Number two, he said, don't be afraid of those who can take your life, your body's life. Rather, stand in awe of him who controls both the destiny of your body and your soul. I know you're all looking forward this week to the release of Paris Hilton from jail. You have that circled on your calendar, do you not? I wasn't going to get into that until she paraded out of her house with a big Bible under her arm. Did you see that picture of her? The first time she went to jail. Then the sheriff released her prematurely. Then the judge sent her back. You know. Well, the first time she came out of her house, knowing full well how many photographers would be there, and being a master of manipulating images of herself, she had a Bible this tall. Had it where you could read the name very clearly as she got in the car go to jail. And then when she was taken back the second time, uh, she had privilege of a phone call and where you and I might have called our mother, our father, she called Barbara Walters. And she told Barbara Walters that God had given her a second chance and that she was going to be a different person. So Newsweek magazine had a big article about that. And they had gone to interview Charles Colson, who said he had a life-changing experience just before he went to prison as a part of that Watergate scandal. And then they interviewed Mark Early, who's worked more than 30 years with Prisoners Fellowship. And they were both asked, uh, do you really think Paris Hilton has been converted? Their life's going to be changed? And they answered, well, we will know soon enough. But listen carefully, because what they said is true of you and me as well. If a person has had a real change of heart, they will have a new spirit of humility. They will have a new spirit of accountability. And they will establish meaningful fellowship with a worshiping congregation. That's what those two guys said. Humility, accountability, and fellowship with a worshiping congregation. Stand in awe of him who controls all of your future. Okay. Number three. Here comes the part about the sparrows and the hairs on your head. Uh, the word here for the value of these two little sparrows is asarion. It's a Roman coin. It was equivalent to one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius was one day's pay for an average laborer. So one-sixteenth of the day's pay would buy two little sparrows, the cheapest meat sold in the market. And Jesus said, but even those little birds do not fall without your father's knowing. And he knows how many hairs you have on your head. And that really gets interesting if you think about every time you comb yours, one or two or three come out, that he knows how many hairs on your head. And what he's saying, of course, is this is the one who really knows and cares most. Dr. Robert Gorell is our new Methodist preacher at Church of the Servant in Oklahoma City, and he was recently reminding his congregation about a fellow named Charles Plum. Charles Plum graduate U.S. Naval Academy, 
became a Navy fighter pilot, flew 75 successful missions over Vietnam, was shot down on the 76th, parachuted to the ground, was immediately captured by the communists, and spent six long, miserable years in a communist prison. Finally, he was released. One night, he was in a restaurant with his wife when a fellow walked past, going toward the cashier in the door, who suddenly stopped and said, Captain Plum. He stood up and said, Do I know you? And the man said, No, you don't know me, but I packed your parachutes. And Captain Plum said, Really? And the man said, Really? That afternoon late, when your plane didn't come back, everybody wondered what had happened to you. We had a special announcement on the Kitty Hawk that you'd been shot down. And I counted up. I was the one who packed the chute you were wearing, and it must have worked, because here you are. Well, Captain Plum became a motivational speaker for the next 40 years, and in his speech he talks about who is that person who has much to do with your safety and well-being? When you drive a car high up in the mountains, you need good brakes. Did some brake repairman do the work properly? When you're driving in a 104-degree temperature, is the person who balanced your tires or made that tire or installed that tire what about that person who's supposed to have serviced the airplane on which you fly next and so on? The person who treats you as a physician, the one who's your dentist or whatever? Those people that have such an important place in your well-being. Jesus said, guess what? There's one even more important than all of them. This is the one who controls your today and all your tomorrows stand in proper awe of him. He knows about every sparrow. He knows how many hairs on your head. Number four, this part about losing your life, those who keep clutching theirs will lose it. Those who lose their lives to put God into the center and others into the center will surely find theirs. Sue Monk Kidd remembers something that happened to her when she was 12. Bob remembers something that happened to him when he was eight. Sue remembers something that happened to her when she was 12. She was active in church. Her mother and father saw to that. She was in Sunday school. She sang in the choir. This was her big confirmation year, sixth grade. And all the confirmation class was taught to make crepe paper flowers that they assembled into crepe paper flower bouquets. And they were going to take them as a group to one of the nearby nursing homes. She said, I was all for that until I discovered that my best friends were going to the swimming pool late that afternoon, and I wanted to be with them. My mother said, no, you're going with the confirmation class. She said, but mom, those are my best friends. She said, I understand. You can swim with them tomorrow, the next day, next week. Tonight, you're going to the nursing home. So she said, I went with my group, and when we got there, it was worse than I thought. Here are all these little old people sitting around in a room, and we were supposed to walk over and hand them our bouquets of crepe paper flowers and various ones, big people to whom they went, and there was one old lady sitting there. She was supposed to be mine, I guess, so I walked over to her. She had a crocheted hat, 
stocking things stuck down on her head, a few little gray hairs sticking out several places all around. I walked right over to her and I said, I brought you these flowers. And she looked at me and said, Sweetheart, you didn't want to come tonight, did you? And she said, I fibbed. I said, oh, yes, I did. I made these for you. I wanted you to have them. And then the woman said something that Sue said I've remembered for nearly 50 years. She said, it's all right. You cannot force the heart, but you can surrender. 